part of that mindset of adaptation was my own biases of, you know, we've got so many dogmas in the industry that I think hurt us of keeping these dogmas there. And so first we've got to overcome our own biases to understand adaptation of cows and their ability to adapt. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. All right, welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast. We're excited to have a guest from the state just to the west of me here in Iowa. Um, we're both enjoying the, the cold snap here in November. So we've got Dr. Travis Molnix, who is a range cow nutritionist and extension specialist at the University of Nebraska. And he is located at the West Central Research and Education Center in, in North Platte, Nebraska. Travis grew up on a cow-calf operation in eastern Oklahoma and received his BS degree in animal science from Oklahoma State University. In addition, he earned a master's and PhD in range nutrition from New Mexico State University. His research and extension objectives consist of developing an applied cow-calf research program that emphasizes economically viable management options through enhanced efficiency, productivity, and nutritional management in beef cattle production. So welcome, Travis. Thanks for having me on, Stephanie. Um, so I'm excited to get to visit with you today. We kind of talked about a few things that we might um, share with our listeners today, and I've got a couple of notes of some things I'm excited to follow up on. But let's just start with a little bit of your background. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey that led you to UNL? Yeah, it's been a, you know, a long circular motion to get to UNL. And so, uh, you know, growing up in Oklahoma in a cow-calf operation, went to Oklahoma State and really had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I was in animal science and, you know, really liked nutrition. And it was when I took our, our feeds and feeding course that, uh, that uh, really the nutrition side really, uh, kicked off and enjoying that but uh, from, from there I went to New Mexico State and uh, really liked the cow aspect of nutrition of range cows uh, of the, the interaction of nutrition and reproduction of how to get cows pregnant and the challenges around that uh, spent four years in southern New Mexico and uh, at the time, my PhD advisor took a job with the USDA Center in Mile City, Montana. And so uh, for my PhD, I actually moved to Mile City and did my PhD research in Mile City, Montana. And, and I took my PhD comps July, or January 4th in New Mexico and moved to Mile City, Montana. So we're complaining about the cold here right now. Think about going from 70 degrees 18 hours later, being over a foot of snow and it was negative 30. Wow. And uh, and I remember the first week being there, we were fecal sampling calves and uh, cows and calves. And, and uh, the only part of me that was warm was my right hand. <laughs> and we know why. <laughs> and we know why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was in Miles City for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, I 
went to the University of Tennessee for my first faculty job. And so I was there for five years. Um, and, and so that was a great opportunity because they had other offers at the time, but th that one allowed me to get uncomfortable. Because coming from, you know, Oklahoma and living in the Western United States, going east was a discomfort. And it was a challenge, uh, which I greatly appreciate because, you know, so many times we get stuck in our bubbles of, you know, what we experience and, and getting out of that discomfort is, is so beneficial of our growth. And so that's led a lot of my research efforts today is the stuff I experienced and saw when I was in, you know, Tennessee. And, and then for the last five years, I've been here in Nebraska. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, Travis. I'm I'm really intrigued. Uh, we're always teaching our graduate students that they need to live outside of their comfort bubble, right? Because they're not, like you said, they're not they're not growing if they're constantly comfortable. Um, walk us through a little bit of what was the thought process that you went through to to make that decision to go to a completely different environment for your first position. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. You know, it wasn't like I felt I knew everything in this environment. It was, it was, I know I don't know much about this. You know, going to something that was, um, you know, 40 plus inches of rainfall per year of running, uh, instead of talking about running cows per section and having, you know, 10 cows per section or something like that, we're talking about two acres per cow. Um, and then getting into improved pasture situations, et cetera. So it was a totally different, uh, different mindset of how cows are managed. Um, and, and they have their own challenges within that as well as with tall fescue. If in fight infected tall fescue was a, a totally different challenge, even that I had in Oklahoma. And so it, it allowed me to grow and, and think differently. And, and so when we start you know, getting discomfort or getting into these uncomfortable situations, it allows us to start thinking a little differently, a little more critically and, and thinking outside the box. And so, you know, I think from my job at extension, um, that's allowed me to think totally different than, you know, others because I've experienced something from east to west coast, from north to, you know, to the south. And so being in all these different production situations just allows you to think a little bit differently on problems and how can we look at those problems as opportunities and how can we use those problems as, as something beneficial for our producers. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, one of your research areas that you um, have kind of focused on a little bit was thinking about um, environmental challenges that cows face and how they might have some different adaptive mechanisms. So I, I want to talk about I want to talk about your research in just a second, but I'm curious, you just described everything from a place with lush grass and, you know, fescue foot issues and lots of rain all the way to really cold, stressing winters in Montana, um, you know, all the way down to what was that thing that Ben Holland said at the ASAS meetings this year? Somehow we raise cows in New Mexico, they eat rocks and they produce a calf. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. You know, going from those environments of five inches of rainfall per year to 40 plus, you know, Man, cows have to be efficient. And, and so, you know, when we think about what we're, our cows are faced with every year, and this looks like it's going to be a continual challenge of this dynamic fluctuations in 
And when we get rainfall or amount of rainfall we get, the amount of cold stress, and cows have to be extremely adaptable, not so much adapted, because adapted is a state of statics, right? That they, they adapt to a static state and adaptable. So they're more flexible. <laughs> and I always think about cows or managing cows as they are an athlete. And some people laugh about this or think I'm, you know, kind of making a joke. But if you think about it, that's really important. And, and so my research technician runs marathons and she can run, she's run two or three back to back full marathons. And she's, you know, she's run these in three day events. And, and if I tried to run one, I would die. <laughs> Same. And, and she can run, you know, multiple days of a full marathon and she's just fine. And why is that? It's because she has progressively overloaded her system where that's not a stress anymore. She's trained. In her body. She's trained. Why don't we think about that from our cow aspect? Is we want to ma manage our cows to take out stress. I think we need to do the opposite. We manage our cows so that they are see stress, but manage to a level that it doesn't reduce performance, that they adapt to that stress. And so there's a fine line there. But if we do that, we can really increase efficiencies. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about a couple of things there. One, um, I would never laugh at your analogy of the cow being an athlete because I actually talk about feedlot steers as being athletes, right? Um, we do a lot of work in my program on um, transit stress response. And, you know, those cows have to stand on a truck the whole time, right? They don't get a chance to lay down for obvious reasons because we get more injuries if they lay down. And they're, they're tired by the end, right? We do some of these long haul transit events and they just want to lay down as soon as they, they get back to the home pen. We always say, you know, this is, uh, and it, so, so I struggle cause I've, I've tried to reach into the human literature to see where we can kind of pull from some of the basic muscle physiology. And we haven't quite wrapped our heads around whether this is an endurance event or like a, um, a more like a sprint thing, right? But your your point being, they're not trained for it because they've been sitting around the feedlot pen doing what we want them to do, which is don't expend a lot of energy, just eat your meal and go back and lay down and you know be very efficient at, at growing. And now we want them to do something totally different. So so walk me through, you know, what are some of the things that you think producers might need to keep in mind as we think about building a more resistant to stress or having greater resiliency to stress in our cattle? Yeah, so a large part of it is is the type of cows that you have of making sure you're selecting for an animal that fits your environment. Uh, another major focus of my research has been milk production. Um, and milk production is one of the drivers that doesn't allow cows to be flexible. You know, we've got major challenges uh, in the beef industry with the level of milk production that we have. And, you know, when we think about the nutrient loads of, of peak milk production and trying to get cows pregnant, and when we've got cows that are milking 30, 40 pounds of milk, and that decreases their ability to, to adapt and be flexible. Because if you think about where nutri nutrients are partitioned, you know, nutrients will go to lactation well before it'll go to putting on body weight or, or to a reproductive event. And, and so we've got to feed lactation before we can feed a cow to get pregnant. 
And so some of our selections have, have, have gone against the ability of the cows to be flexible. Um, some of the other aspects of that is when we get in those situations, we, we like cows to be fat. And we like the cows to be in certain body condition scores. And that's good if a cow has the ability to be easy fleshing, but also be easy at mobilizing the fat and, and oxidizing the fat and using that fat as an energy source. And so my PhD advisor always used um, the concept that fat on the cow it is a supplementation strategy. And, you know, these cows that have the greater ability to put on fat, but to lose fat. And there's some data in the literature, especially in sheep, that showed, you know, that's a heritable trait um, that cows have the ability to utilize that fat reserve as an energy source in these times when when they're deficient in some energy. So, so much that, you know, we, we want to focus on keeping cows in a body condition score five or six, you know, that, that has driven us away from cows that have the ability to, to, uh, to, mobilize fat reserves and utilize those as energy sources without having metabolic dysfunctions. And, and that's where we start getting into problems. So let's, let's circle back to the milk thing first. Um, and then I definitely want to talk about the fat idea. Cause um, I am super guilty of that, right? Like whenever Mary comes over and uh, sees my cows, she'll be like, so they're a body condition score. I'm not going to admit what it is. I'll be like, I don't, I don't know what you see. Like, I don't see Whatever. that. <laughs> I, I don't see those fat pockets. I, I it's not my fault. <laughs> um, but uh, you had a stat in some of our notes that you had sent us um, that I'd like you to share with our listeners about how beef cow milk production compares to some dairy uh, stats from the seventies. Yeah. So if you look at where we're at today, uh, our beef cows or a large percentage of our beef cows are milking more milk at a higher quality of the milk than the Holstein did in the 1970s. I mean, that is just staggering to me. Um, and and you, when you look at our milk EPD changes in, since the 1990s, if we've steadily increased the genetic potential for milk. And that's the reason why. And even in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was a lot of, uh, Holstein Angus crossing to increase milk production and increase gap gain. Um, and, and so we're, we're basically doing very similar stuff today is, is just putting more selection pressure on milk for an output trait. And I tell producers a lot that, you know, weaning weight is great and influence your profitability, but there's profit, um, models that show weaning weight has only about 5% influence on your profit. But you, the largest influence is your feed cost. You know, you, your feed costs make up 65%. And so when we start chasing these output traits through maternal traits of milk and cow size, etc., we start driving away from profitability into the realm of increasing production costs. And are we truly getting enough calf out of increasing milk? And, and a lot of my data says no. You know, there, there's only so much milk available for that calf to suckle. Meaning, you know, can a calf really suckle and drink 40 pounds of milk per day? And no, but we have to feed that cow to that level. Yeah, I think this is 
the stat was was really kind of staggering to me, Travis. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I certainly see cows who have tremendous milk production, and I see seven hundred pounds, you know, calves getting weaned and and things like that all the time. Um, but your point is a great one. Like you know, we can't afford the grocery bill for that cow, especially in the years of drought water limitation issues, or even just, you know, variability in our weather creating feed resource challenges. So it it's fascinating for me, though, as a, a mineral nerd, right, as a micronutrient nutritionist, to think about, you know, there's whole chapters in the dairy NRC about the effects of lactation on nutrient requirements. And, you know, we're not to that point yet on the beef side, right? And you know, we have 30 parts per million of zinc for all stages of production, right? Regardless. And yet you're trying to talk about this animal who's essentially, you know, a milk cow, you know, even if it is from 40 years ago, but. You know, and and that's where you get jealous of the dairy industry or dairy scientists is because, you know, they can get their hands on cows every day. Even in the feedlot, it's hard to get our hands on on animals every day. And, And so they get much quality data where I've got cows in thousands of acres of pastures. And, you know, even when we do milk studies that we're milking five times per lactation curve, that is a tremendous amount of work to, to, and we're milking cows with a milking machine like they do um, on a dairy, but that's just a tremendous amount of work and effort to get that data. Yeah, I agree. And so we, we are so lacking on that side. I'm so jealous of the dairy nutritionist. Like, well, my running joke is that if you want to be a dairy nutritionist, you can't add any ingredient at greater than seven and a half percent in the diet. Uh, that was like the most complex rations, but also that you can get fired tomorrow because they're going to know by tomorrow if you screwed something up. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, they can milk every day and, and tweak things and figure things out where, where it goes wrong. And in the feedlot, I can only harvest them once. <laughs> yep. And, and that's the thing is, from a production side is, that talking to producers about this is, you know, it's a long-term game for them. If I'm breeding cows and, and whatever, and, and we know next year where a dairy guy is seeing the result of what the, what the feed supplement, you know, the nutrient profile was I fed today, they see that tomorrow. Yeah. And so they make changes pretty rapidly where it's harder to do on the beef side. Certainly. I don't envy their reproductive challenges though. So so this makes me think about, um, you know, really what you're talking about here is one of the major challenges of having, even just doing grazing research, but also just extensive cow production research systems. So I know that your, your team over there at UNL has some collaborators from the engineering departments and others and kind of have, have an emphasis on precision livestock. And I'm curious if there are any things in there that you are working on in your research or extension efforts to think about how you can get more data from these extensive systems or are trying to overcome some of the challenges of measurements in extensive systems. Yeah, so so in the last few years, we've been fairly heavy involved in precision livestock management. Um, and so I, I look at it from two different ways is that you're right, that we've got major challenges of answering questions for producers because location, where cows are, how to get that data, or even getting quality data. You know, we had better, um, we had better methods of estimating forage intake of a grazing animal in the 1980s than we do today. 
and so that's where some of these technology can come into play is that I see it one is help us answer these questions that we have a hard time answering correctly. And two is there's a lot of interest in precision ag. You know, you think about what it's done on the dairy side, robotic milking, what, what it's done on the cropping side. And it's really, it's, it's really exploded production. And so when we look at uh, output traits of weeding weight and reproduction in the cow herds in the United States, we have not changed them in, in the last 30 years. You know, weeding weight has been flatlined. Reproduction has flatlined. And so that's where I see a lot of these precision tools really helping with, can I decrease my costs? And the potential to increase some productivity that, that I can measure or I can manage those cows a little differently to increase some production parameters. And so we're, we're doing research with virtual fencing, you know, it's fairly similar stuff as they've had for dogs and, and people for their houses. And so there's a lot of interest in, in, in virtual fencing. And so there are several companies across the world with virtual fencing technology. There's only a handful of the United States and uh, in the next uh, year or two, there will be probably five, six, seven companies in the United States with virtual fencing technology. And, and so uh, we're, we're utilizing that. We're using like cameras a lot. We can estimate body weight of a cow with a camera with the greater accuracy than a scale weight. So is this like with, with like it's, LiDAR technology or what are you using for that? It's a, it's a 3D imagery. Okay. It's the same type of camera uh, that they make video games with. Um, and so and we've used, utilized it as a source of, in, in my plan, is it that you know, a lot of producers have no capability of measuring, of measuring body weight cows. Very reactive. Um, you know, when we had the bomb cyclone in 2019, we had a lot of thin cow issues. And, and they lost full body condition scores within 30 days. Man, if they had a way of proactively measuring body weight, I can be very proactive with my nutrient management. Going back to that dairy comment is, man, if I can flag cows that are losing body weight at a rapid rate, you know, I can change how I'm feeding cows and get ahead of it. And that's where I see a lot of this camera stuff is that we can have cameras set up at uh, water sites, et cetera, that, that flags animals that come in that, hey, this cow has lost 50 pounds. Um, just so we can be a little more proactive. Um, were, were you, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And there's other aspects with cameras as health, right? And, they can utilize this stuff in the feedlot as well as, you know, one of our biggest challenge in the grazing aspect is if I lose a calf, you know, seven miles away, I lost a lot of money and I only get a check on those cows maybe once a week. And, and so it's easy to lose a calf for a sickness issue. And, and so that's a major economic loss for a producer. But if, if I had a way that I could early detect sickness, that I know which calf it is and where it's at, and I can go treat it at, at, at early response and save that calf. Do you have any particular like tags that you're using or um, 
I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of what you're thinking, either some of the ones that measure like rumination. So we know that a sick animal will often go off feed as much as 24 hours before they display visual signs of illness. We've done some of that work. Um, we've done some studies in our feedlot where we actually gave calves an LPS challenge, which would be the outer coating of bacteria, right? It's what the calf generates an immune response against. And so then he he generated the visual symptoms of being sick because, right, he didn't feel very good. And then it goes away pretty quickly. So it's a cool little research tool where we could train our camera algorithms, the software algorithms, working with some folks in our ag and biosystems engineering group, Josh Peschel's group, to be able to say, oh, like this calf has his head down, has his ears down. And of course, course, cattle being prey animals, they're so, so annoyingly good at hiding symptoms of illness. Yeah. So so we we haven't moved that far yet. Our challenge is connectivity. And that's going to be a major challenge for for cow-calf producers, especially in the Western United States, is connectivity. And so we're highly limited by that response. The, The other that we're limited is of you know, so we've got 600 cows at, at the ranch, and the the percent of sick calves that we have, it will take years and years for us to actually have a predictive model. For and so it really needs to happen. Some of that research is moving forward is as receiving calf research at first to get some of those predictive models of of you know, like you say, with pictures, ears down, etc., head down, uh, ruddy nose. You know, that's where that needs to start. And then it can be taken out and validated out on a production setting that we have less of that that health response. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're also using these, um, these individual uh, electronic feeders as okay. well. You know, so think about it from a standpoint of a... Uh, Create feeder on steroids. Right. This is your C-lock system? C-lock yep. feeders. Yep. Yep. I've got four different C-lock feeders. Um, there's pros and cons of each one of them. But it, one, it allows us to individually feed animals on pasture. And so, you know, historically, a lot of my research, we would have to bring cows in once or twice a week and, and feed them individually their supplement. You know, it's very time consuming. Um, this allows us to leave them out in their pasture and I can feed three, four different supplements through those feeders with, a, with cows with the EID in their ear. And, and I can target, you know, one pound per day supplement or two pounds per day supplement. And, and so there are some companies that Sealock's one of them, but there's some companies that are producing some of these electronic feeders just just for the producer in mind of their producer models of these and, and so when i talk to producers about it you know you know i kind of cover the aspect of if i'm feeding 100 cows on a pasture and i want to feed two pounds per day to these 100 cows i've got cows that are eating five six seven pounds of that and i've got cows eating nothing and so that's a huge variation in intake. And, and, and so you get these timid cows that are not eating. And then you got these boss cows are eat, overeating, getting fat. Well, you're not only really not helping yourself out with this huge variation. Right. You're making it bigger. And, and so, so you're making it bigger, right? And that, that's, that's a big challenge for producers is, you know, how can I limit that variation and, and, and equalize that variation in responses? 
and some of these electronic feeding systems are, are, are could be the way to do that from a production setting is you know i've got a feeder that gives me partial body weights when animals come in and get their supplement and so from a very proactive measurement you know if i need heifers gaining or yearlings gaining two pounds per day then i can change from my, my computer here i can change how much they're allowed to eat and if they're gaining you know pound and a half i need two pounds i can up their allowable intakes and so from a production standpoint, that allows me to be really proactive in how I'm managing those cows. Yeah. The variation in, you know, so from like my research, thinking about like free choice vitamin and mineral intake, so frustratingly variable, um, you know, this cow eats a whole bunch and then the next cow is like, whatever, I'm not even going over there. <laughs> So, so let's talk about, uh, you know, some of your research regarding uh, kind of this small packet supplementation. So that's one of the things you might be delivering via something like one of these feeders. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're trying to learn with that research, what you would hope that, you know, producers might want to take away from that. Yeah. So, so one, cost, feed cost is a major issue. And so a lot of the goal is how can I minimize the amount of feed that I have to feed to elicit a positive response? And so from a reproductive standpoint, I, I can uh, sometimes manipulate the system with certain ad feed additives. Um, so one, one of the coolest studies or one of my favorite studies was a, a study done um, that fed lambs. Oat chaff. Okay, and you know how low quality oat chaff is. And they fed these lambs either a combination of oat chaff alone, they fed them fish meal, which is a high bypass, rumen undergradable protein source. With and without, they infused them, uh, post group ruminal inf infused them with glucose. All right, so, so they supply post-ruminal glucose to, and they found the ones that got the fish meal and the glucose had a, a, a feed conversion ratio of four. Highly efficient on OCHA. Yeah. And so the combination of feeding bypass protein and glucose really increases efficiencies. And so a lot of my research has been focused on actually glucose. And in the dairy side, they talk about glucose as a requirement, uh, especially at, you know early cat after calving, right. early lactation, it's for lactose. cows losing. Yep. And so, so a lot of my research is focused on how can I increase post ruminal glucose. And so a lot of my data has shown if I can get if that increased glucose to those cows, I can increase reproductive performance. And, and you know, a early lactating cow, especially here, becomes a diabetic. And so we have these insulin resistant cows running around, and all that does is it drives whatever available glucose that's there, drives it to lactation. And it increases lactation and it drives it away from reproduction. And so, so we've got these insulin resistant cows and, and they're less productive. And we see this mostly in young females, two and three year old cows. 
And so the goal has been, how can I increase the amount of glucose available that offsets or alleviates insulin resistance? And so we've got some really great responses in the last several years of by feeding a product that increases glucose, I increase reproduction. And I'm only feeding about 40 grams per day of a glucose source. And so 40 grams is all it takes to offset some of these metabolic dysfunctions and increased reproduction. Uh, one of the recent studies that we did was comparing a, a product called calcium propionate, which is made by Kimmin, versus Remensin. So both of them have a glucogenic response through increasing propionate at the rumen level. And so for three years, we did this study with our March calving twos and three-year-olds, and I increased reproduction by nine percentage points by feeding calcium propionate. And that was only 40 grams per day that elicited that response. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Small package targeted supplementation is that have a big potent metabolic effect. Doesn't change body weight. Oh, I was just going to say, so, um, so what would be your timing of supplementation for that? Like when, when relative to calving and things and breeding, would you have been offering the calcium propionate? Yeah. So, so that study, uh, we started feeding about 10 days after calving, uh, up to breeding. And so, uh, at breeding time, they go out to our farthest pastures away from headquarters. So it's hard for us to start supplementing those cows. Uh, but yeah, yeah, nine percentage points increase by feeding that. So what do you think is, what's your hypothesis about what the mechanism of action is behind that? Why is, why is glucose the magic key there? So when we get in these situations from a rumen side, we have a large percent of our VFAs are acetate and very limited on the procreate side. So we get this imbalance of acetate to procreate. And so from the uh, energy side of that cow is we run into issues of, of oxidizing that acetate. And so what happens is that the, the, the acetate is not oxidized. It gets converted into beta-hydroxybutyrate ketones. And so we've run into similar results in the dairy side with some metabolic challenges. Is I've got data showing that feeding these, these products that increase glucose, I decrease ketones, and that ketones has a major impact on when that cow is going to get pregnant. And it's all relative to the ability to oxidize and utilize acetate as the energy source that we need it to be. And so when that's slowed down, we start running into metabolic issues of insulin resistance, ketosis, et cetera, that, that limits reproductive events. So I'm curious, kind of circling back to your comment about how much milk, <clears throat> how much milk yield has increased in beef cows. With your herd there, um, are you able to see any kind of correlations between is there a greater response to improve glucose availability in your higher milk yield cows in terms of the reproductive response? Yeah, so I've got some data from New Mexico that, that I use for this, showing that with our twos and three-year-old cows, that my, the more that they milked, the longer it took them to start cycling again after calving. 
And so that time period from calving to cycling is so important from a young cow aspect of getting bred. That's really driving production efficiency from that side. Because we, we've got to get cows bred within 80 days after calving, 85 days after calving. And a normal postpartum interval for a young female in our environment is 90 days. And, and that's why, you know, they have the lowest preg rates in the herd. That, that's why we have some longevity issues is if they get bred, they get bred late and, and next year they're calving late and have that challenge again is I've got short time to, to recover and start cycling. And so milk production plays a role in their ability to recover from calving. And the more milk that they're producing, the longer it takes to recover because you know peak lactation is thought to be somewhere around 60 days after calving, right? Uh, and that's debatable, but, uh, you know, we're 60 days is getting really close to when we're turning bulls out. And so we stack their highest nutrient requirement right on top of when they need to be recovered and start cycling, you know, and, and that's where the negative of milk production really comes in is that it inhibits reproduction. Now I've had that happen when I was in Tennessee is, I had mature cows in Tennessee uh, have low breed up by high milk. And so, the, you know, that data showed there's a correlation between milk and, and reproduction in high quality environments. Yeah. Okay. So I'm also a repro by nutrition nerd. <laughs> it was funny when you were talking about your like feeds and feeding type class being your kind of light bulb moment. I remember really, really enjoying my repro classes, um, embryo transfer, et cetera here, and then sitting in my advanced nutrition class. And it's funny because now I teach that advanced nutrition class, right? So I always tell students on the first day, this was my light bulb moment class because in repro, yeah, we talked a little bit about nutrition in the sense of like, getting animals to high enough, you know, body fatness that they would cycle, et cetera. But in nutrition, we really talked about all the different ways nutrition could affect repro. And I was like, aha, this is what I'm interested in. Right, so right. when I went to NC State to interview with Jerry Spears for grad school, he was like, I said, well, I like repro and I like nutrition. And he's like, let's look at the effects of manganese on beef heifer reproduction. Cause basically nobody's looking at that. <laughs> um, and it's funny, right? Cause that's some of the only data that we probably still have on that topic. But um, I wanted to kind of ask this question as somebody who's done a lot of thinking about the interaction between reproduction and nutrition. What do you think are some of our biggest challenges that we're facing for, um, um, what's the right way to say this? So I kind of want to ask, what do you think are some of the biggest research opportunities in this field? Yeah. So, you know, from a mature cow aspect, we don't have a lot of issues with reproduction and because they've done it, they've made it through that area. You know, the, the hardest cow to have in your cow herd, is always going to be your two-year-old or your three-year-old. And depending on the environment I lived in, that was sometimes the two-year-old and sometimes that was the three-year-old. But from the aspect of reproduction, that, that's I think that's a lot of focus should be on is how to get these young cows cycling earlier and, and what is driving some of that. Um, I, I think that, that's a really, from a, you know, this coming from the extension side is that that's the number one challenge of my producers is is getting young cows rebred 
And how can we do that cost effectively and how can we do that quickly? I'm curious, um, cycling back, I guess, to kind of where we started some of this about environmental adaptation. Um, I, I know that this is another area that you have been leading some research efforts in. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about um, what you think you're learning about how cows are adapting to different environments, building some of that resiliency. Yeah. So maybe I'll step back a little bit on this. Is you know, so so I grew up in Oklahoma. You know, I, I got taught one thing at Oklahoma State. I moved to New Mexico in August to start grad school. In the first week, we're weighing heifers for a project in August. And so in that system, bulls will go in in May uh, and then get pulled in, in July. And so they were about 30 days out of breeding. And so we were weighing these heifers. I'm looking at them like there's no way they had bulls with these. I mean, this is just crazy. And so, you know, part of that mindset of adaptation was my own, you know, biases of, you know, we've got so many dogmas in the industry that I think hurt us of keeping these dogmas there. And so first we've got to overcome our own biases to understand adaptation of cows and their ability to adapt. Um, but, but so much of it is, is allowing those cows to see stress and experience that stress and be able to select cows that have the ability to adapt to it. And that does start with the heifer, right? Is that, that, that's the number one place where you're starting to select for animals for that. And I tell producers that, that are developing their heifers, do you want 90% preg rates or do you want 70% preg rates? And, and the Duh. reason, yeah, <laughs> and, and the reason why I, I prefer would prefer seventy is: Do you want that twenty percent that I pushed a little harder with nutrition to get pregnant? Because so many times we take animals out of environments to get them pregnant. Uh, part of my PhD research was have a long-term heifer development project that we took heifers. Half of the heifers stayed at the ranch in New Mexico. They gained three quarters of a pound per day on winter range. The other half went to a feedlot to gain a pound and a half per day. And it was only 100 days of the heifer development. And so when we look at long-term productivity, guess which one was still in the herd at a higher rate at five years of age? The heifers that we left on the ranch, right? And, and, and left them alone. And, and from a genetic standpoint, no difference, right? Same genetic type, you know, come from the same herd, same cohorts. The only difference is how I managed them for 100 days. And so that really stuck in my mind, it's always stuck in my mind, is, is it doesn't take long to adapt a cow either way. And especially earlier on, is is it doesn't take long to make them adapted or adaptable within that environment. And there was a huge difference in longevity between the two. It wasn't a little bit; it was a massive difference of somewhere about sixty-five percent that were still in the herd at five years of age of the range group, and, and like forty percent of the feedlot group. Hmm. 
So do you think, do you think metabolically we're shifting something in those heifers that were getting pushed, um, you know, to have that higher rate of gain so that yes, they did manage to get bred, but they didn't have that ability. You know, I kind of think back to something you said earlier about, you know, using that fat as another supplement, right? So saying, well, I've got this fat cover, but do I actually have the ability to mobilize it and use it when I need it? Yeah. So it could be metabolically, it could be a rumen function as well. Um, there are some interesting data feeding calves, calves, either straw or alfalfa hay and their ability to di- digest straw later on in life. And the calves that consumed straw, just low quality, whatever, um, had higher digestibility of that lower quality straw as a five year, oh, I think it's five years of age when they did the study, than the calves that ate the alfalfa hay. So part of it is early on adaptations of maybe the rumen function, and, and there could be a cellular component of gene expression that gets activated in some of these cows that allows them to be more flexible. Um, you know, there's a term that sometimes used in the dairy side and the human side is metabolic flexibility. And, and so much of that is wrapped around insulin resistance, but are we allowing cows to be metabolically flexible under different circumstances that can turn on or turn off stuff that allows them to be productive still? Uh, there's, there's so much that we don't know or understand, and so much of that is because how we have to manage cows where they're at. But I think so much of it is early on adaptation periods allow for those cows to be adaptable. But that, you know, I, I talk to producer about how they're feeding their heifers is so you take them out of that environment and we're feeding them whatever for rate again. Will they ever see that environment again to be productive? And, and most time they'll never see that level of nutrition again. So what, why do we think that, you know, managing that early on is a good thing for later in life? And, you know, there, there's, that's a really cool area of research that I think we need to focus a lot more on is, you know, with increased drought, increased weather conditions, how can we make cows more resilient to these? How can we make cows that have the ability to, to maybe decrease their requirements and stay flexible and still, you know, wean a calf, get pregnant early, et cetera, and not have a negative response to drought or, or or nutrient restriction. It's it's so interesting because as a college professor, I just heard all of these analogies to students who for the last several years seem to have this, you know, less amount of resiliency to stress and stuff for whatever reason. There's probably lots of things, but one of them is that they've maybe had some parents who have been really anxious and have just been trying to make sure that kid never has a bad day and it feels good at the moment, but we're not building resiliency skills necessarily in those individuals. And then they come to college and they can struggle. And that's, you know, if I make sure that my heifers never have a bad day growing up and so she got pregnant with the first one, oh, first calf's on the ground and then she falls apart. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised. So I think that's super interesting. Yeah. You know, we live in a society that we crave comfort. You know, even the last, you know, five, 10 years of how technology has changed where our mindsets have changed to resiliency. 
you know, it's the internet goes out, it's the end of the world, right? <laughs> it, you know, we're going from areas of, you know, of, you know, I grew up with a party line of, you know, you pick up the phone at the house and your neighbors down the road several miles could be on the phone talking. That's a crazy concept to me today of, you know, how far we've made it, you know, in the, in the last 10, 20 years. But that, that has really changed our mindset of resiliency because we, we really enjoy comfort. And, and so many times we put that on our cows as well. Right. We, we put that that they need to be in a body condition score six, seven, and we need to manage this way. And that really takes the ability of that cow to adapt out of the equation. And when they see that stress, they fall apart. You know, and we see that with bulls a lot. Is we, we, you know, you talk about how guys develop bulls and, and then a producer buys them and turns them out and they fall apart. And so, you know, there's different models that have shown, you know, this going on. But it's a really cool research area that I think there should be a lot more focus moving down the line. It is time to our famous three. Well, this has been a really awesome conversation, Travis. I think we've gone lots of fun places for our listeners and maybe uh, getting producers to think a little bit differently about how they might do a few things with the cow herd. So for this podcast, we have a series of three questions that we're trying to ask every guest at the end. So I was kind of frantically trying to pull them up here. Um, all right. So question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Oh, I think it's a mix of journals. You know, and even dairy journals. I, I read a lot of dairy papers. Uh, and so I think it's a mix of different journals of staying fresh you know, thinking outside the box, thinking critically, and and looking at different species to do that. Yeah. Any favorite journals? Ooh, uh, not necessarily. You know, we can go to the our standards. You know, Journal of Animal Science, uh, the, the newer translational or applied animal science JDS. Um, you know, you know. I think Google Scholar, the ability of Google Scholar <laughs> to send you daily recommendations yes. have been tremendous. Yeah. And it gets those papers that I would never catch in my inbox. Yeah, yeah, I love it too. It's almost overwhelming for the grad students though, right? Because they're it still is. figuring out how to right. suss out the good from the not so Correct. good Correct. <laughs> research. Correct. Um, but yeah, it's it's an awesome tool. And yeah, I hear the dairy thing so hard. Um, I'm I was so sad. I'm still sad that we separated the joint animal science and dairy science meetings. That was such a loss for us beef folks because the dairy people do very fundamental rumen focused research that oftentimes we're not able to do in our field for whatever reason. So yeah, we miss that. Okay, question number two: What is a book not related to beef that you are currently reading? So this would fit in the discussion that we've been having on comfort. And um, I've been reading a book called The Comfort Crisis. Uh, and so, you know, and we talked about this. As a world, we, we get so focused on our comfort. And, and, you know, getting out of this comfort area really challenges, makes us better scientists. It makes us a better person, a better leader. And if we're always in our comfort zone, we're stagnant. 
You know, I, I remember stories from my great grandmother of the Dust Bowl and thinking about the challenges and the resiliencies of those people in that time of what they went through. And, and then if we try to go through that today, man, our, we would fall apart. And so as a society, we just get so stuck on being in our comfort zones and feeling comfortable. Yeah, I love that. Okay, I'm going to have to look that up because I've definitely been on a nonfiction book kick lately. <laughs> We've been doing some work with the grad students. Okay, final question. What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? Uh, I would say someone that thinks critically but very graceful, meaning that, you know, we live in a very critical, from the science aspect, we live in a very critical world, right? But we've got to show grace when we do this, is that, you know, a lot of stuff that I think or do may not be correct and be willing to accept the criticalness of you saying, you may want to think about this. Right. And but showing grace to do that, of being a and you we've all seen these high level thinkers that are highly critical, but they don't show the grace. And that really turns people off. And it's the people that really benefit science, benefits production or they're really critical thinkers, but they show grace at how they're critical. And they're, you know, those are the type of people that you love being around because they add so much value to programs. Yeah, absolutely. You don't need that person who's just be in there to be your echo chamber and say, yep, I agree. I agree. I always say that. I was like, I don't want you to be my yes person. I want you to be my, are you sure? Like, <laughs> Let's think that through person. It, it's it's that, that saying of you don't ever want to be the smartest per person in the room concept. And when you're not, you, you gain so much because you can, if you listen and learn and, and accept you know, critical thinking, and you learn so much and don't get defensive of this is my mindset. This is what I, my opinion. Absolutely. Well, I definitely have not been the smartest person in the room. So I guess I've been successful for this hour. No, definitely not me. <laughs> All right. Well, Travis, this has been a really great discussion. We appreciate your time today. Anything Final words you want to tell our producers, things to think about as we roll into winter? No, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, from a aspect of, you know, managing cows and, and with, with the challenges we have, we've got a lot of challenges to face our producers, you know, and programs that get people thinking and challenging things. And are, they are so beneficial of, of, you know, so many times we're stuck in our silos and, and we don't, you know, cross those boundaries and, and talk to people from different aspects, different universities, different experiences. And so, you know, programs like this really help people think. And uh, hopefully, you know, that challenges people to think differently. And I've always told people, you know, I don't care what their take on if I'm right or wrong. I want them to think. And they may disagree with me as long as they think. And so, you know, that's what makes things like this great. Excellent. Those are some great words to end on, Travis. So again, thanks for being with us. 